is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this episode, we meet the man who built a Jaguar C-Type as he tells us how he did it. Plus, Richard remembers the Intercontinental Challenge races with TWR and the XJR-15s. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. I'm Wayne Scott, hope you're well and enjoying what's left of August as I record this just before the August bank holiday 2020. As already, the summer is kind of drawing to an end. I hope you've made the best of it, I hope you've enjoyed yourself in the best way that we can under the circumstances at the moment. But already we're looking forward to next year here in the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. Next I have exciting news of next year's Summer Jaguar Festival, of course, celebrating the 60th anniversary of the Jaguar E-Type to be held at Blenheim Palace and Haythrop Park Hotel, 14th to the 16th of May 2021. And to tell us more about what the plans are for next summer is James Blackwell, General Manager of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. Hiya, James. Wayne, how are you? Good, very good. Getting excited already for events that we're putting into the calendar for next year because it's nearly upon us. You know, suddenly here we are at the end of summer 2020 and the good thing is we can put it all behind us and start looking forward to 2021 and that's exactly what we're doing. And I understand tickets are going on sale soon. When exactly? Very true. Yeah, uh, Tuesday, the 1st of September, the uh, package tickets for the hotel, uh, which include obviously your day tickets for Blenheim Palace on the Sunday, go on sale. Brilliant. So give us an outline then of what these packages look like. Anyone who went to the Summer Jaguar Festival in 2019, when we were last at Haythrop Park Hotel and Blenheim Palace, would recognise most of what's on offer, wouldn't they? Yes. Yes, they would. And, and one of the things that we, we always like to think that we learn from the, the, each event that we put on, and we've done exactly that again. We've, you know, the package worked really well the last time we went to Blenheim. So we've tried to keep the core elements of that. So Friday night is a, is a nice casual barbecue style uh, buffet. People can come and enjoy after all the traveling down to, to, uh, to the venue that being Hayfrock Park. Saturday, we're going to go for a bit more of a formal dinner on the, on the gala dinner. And we've worked really hard with the hotel to uh, put in all the COVID regulations. Yes, we're still talking about the COVID regulations. Um, but we thought if we put all those those uh, limits in place now, you know, it's a better place if we can free up a bit more space and a bit more room as, as we get closer to the date. We, you know, that That's the right approach for us to take. So that's what we've done. So nice and casual on the Friday nice smart dress up and enjoy yourself on the, on the saturday night with a gala dinner and um, if you don't fancy the drive home on the sunday um those that did stay behind last year will, will know that we had uh, the lovely movie outside and the, it was a glorious weather on the big screen tv and, uh, and that went down really well but we've we've expanded that a little bit more as well and we're looking to get some some nice bites and nibbles out there as well as access to a bar and uh, all three days there casual on the friday smart gala on the Saturday and then uh, chill out and relax for the movie on the Sunday night before uh, getting ready to travel home on the Monday. 
Brilliant. And of course, it's not just the E-Type that we're celebrating the birthday of. It is also the anniversary of 70 years since Jaguar's first win at Le Mans with the C-Types. And I'm very much looking forward to running some sessions on that as well with some very special guests. And of course, 20 years since the launch of the X-Type and 60 years since the arrival of the Mark 10 Saloon. So lots more to celebrate as well. So how many birthdays can you fit in, in one weekend, really? That's what I don't feel like we, we need a day for each. All of a sudden we're into a four-day extravaganza. Um, no, it, the really nice thing is it gives us an, you know, loads to celebrate, loads to talk about, loads to do. It really is, you know, it's how much can we fit into one weekend of celebrations. So really looking forward to, you know, a big birthday party for all of those. Um, that, that's, you know, that's the approach we're trying to take. You know, let's make it fun. Let's really enjoy it. Let's let their hair down and give these cars the, uh, the, the party they deserve. Absolutely. And uh, really, the message is that, yes, the headline anniversary is, of course, 60 years of the iconic E-Type. But there will be something for owners of every model, regardless of the era, at the Summer Jaguar Festival, not only on the Sunday for Big Show Day, but also throughout that extended weekend as well. And Saturday, we are well, we're going to have some amazing plans uh, for the Saturday daytime for you, as James mentioned, including driving experiences to Bista Heritage, which going to be really exciting as well and i know we can't say too much this early on but some vips and special personalities that are going to be joining us as well james yes yes i hate these things and we in the background we're doing all the planning and we know what's going on we, we really want to shout about it and we, and we can't you know it'd be it would be amazing to tell you everything now but you know there's still a few things to, to plan there's still a few things to finally agree but um I, i'm sure you will agree wayne being in those conversations that actually it's uh, with the, the people we've got planned and, and with the events planned around them and the cars as well you know it really is an exciting not to be missed um weekend in celebration of everything we've done so oh, like you i just want to tell everybody but no we, we've got to wait well what we can tell you is to hurry up and book 1st of September, tickets go on sale for the weekend hotel packages. The actual show tickets for the daytime show, the Summer Jaguar Festival show on the Sunday at Blenheim Palace will go on sale in the new year in 2021. But for now, we have released tickets for the weekend packages and you can get them all via the website jec.org.uk forward slash festival. You'll see all the information that we're able to release about the event at the moment on there, plus the COVID-19 policy for cancellations and safety and just follow the booking options through and from the 1st of September 2020 you can book your weekend packages to come and join us for the extended celebration of all of those anniversaries that we mentioned and uh, it's really something to look forward to isn't it James because it's been one hell of a year. Yes after the year we've had of, of sort of just nothing but cancellations and uh um, postponements it's really nice to be able to look forward to something and uh, I'm I know working with the partners that we are that we're, we're working really hard but actually the chances of this not going ahead are, are they're, they're really very slim very very slim because we'll also have a better idea of what we do need to have in place and what we don't need to have in place and and uh, you know to make sure that event carries on I know the hotel have worked really hard at putting the same sort of regulations in place as well so um, yeah really nice to actually look forward to something positive after a year of of disappointments with events really 
jec.org.uk forward slash festival is the place to go to get your tickets from the 1st of September. James Blackwell, thanks for joining us. Pleasure, Wayne, as always. You take care and stay safe, everybody. Memories of motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Well, we've spoken before about the XJR15 on the JAC podcast, and we know 53 of them were made by Jaguar Sport, who are, of course, a subsidiary of uh, Jaguar Cars and TWR at the time. Uh, but what we didn't mention was that a number of them were specifically built to compete in the 1991 Jaguar Sport Intercontinental Challenge. And this year, 2020, marks the 30th anniversary of the announcement of that competition. It was a three-race competition as a support race for the Formula One rounds that year at Monaco, Silverstone and Spa. It must be amazing for you, Richard, looking back, that it's 30 years ago already. I can't believe it. I mean, it's frightening. You do wonder where the time goes, don't you? You, know, you, you? you look at the pictures and you think, crikey, was that really then? 30 years, it was a fascinating time because, and, and we, you're right, we have talked about it before, but there's a bit of a recap that led to the series. Obviously, XJ220 had come along in a very different form to what it was originally proposed to Jaguar as it was going to be, you know, the V12, etc., etc. And then, of course, the car came out and was, uh, you know, V6 turbo-powered. Tom also, at that time, had had this hankering for a long time for something that was a direct uh, Group C, as it was then, sports car racing derivative. And Andy Morrison and TWR Special Vehicle Operations, which was opposite. As you walk, as you drove on to this state in Kidlington in those days, as it was, you went past seven or eight buildings, I think it was, that were all TWR. You, the first one you came to in the one-way system on the left was Jaguar Sport, which was Paul Davis and his team working wonders with both the Saloon and the XJS range. You went round the corner a little bit and you came to TWR Racing. You came round the corner from that and you came to a building which was a store but also had offices in where I was based with the, you know, the early marketing suite. <laughs> Very grand uh, description of three old offices, but that's what it was with myself and Andy King and various others. And then you came round to Tom's office and the engine shop which was run by Alan Scott and Charlie Bamber. And opposite that, on the other side of the road, there was a nondescript building, just had a very discreet branding on it, which was TWR Special Vehicle Operations. And that was where Andy Morrison and his team worked from, along with Peter Stevens. And that was where XJR15 was designed, hatched, and produced. And it was a revelation. You know, the first time I think I've said this before, I went in there, I thought we had a new Group C car on the butt. And it was the carbon composite one-piece chassis, uh, which was originally registered as Tom 4 on the road. And that was the car that a lot of the development work was done on. And one of our members, I believe, actually owns that car now and has had it on display uh, prior to the COVID lockdown. And it created a bit of a firestorm. Well, it did. It created a major firestorm within Jaguar because Tom had pushed ahead and had the car designed and prototyped really without being, you know, totally open with Jaguar that we were building it. And it had a price tag of half a million pounds at that time. Owners of the XJR15 uh, could pay a little bit more than that even. Um, those that paid a million quid apiece for their cars uh, had support, preparation and maintenance by uh, TWR. And included in that purchase price was all of the race package provided by TWR. The winners were entered into this intercontinental challenge. Now, most of them, Richard, most of them hired in professional drivers to drive the cars for them, didn't they? 
They did indeed. A name that some of you um, listeners will be familiar with is Andy King. Andy King, my number two, a former Formula 3 driver in his own right, and a quick peddler at that. Andy really took charge of the Intercontinental Challenge um, from the point of view that I was involved in the Group C and IMSA programs we've talked about before. And we were also selling some customer cars and spares packages into Japan. But the Intercontinental Challenge meant that you could nominate a quick peddler into your car those three races uh, were arranged through Bernie. Tom went off and saw Bernie Eccleston, and they came up with this three-race package. And I always remember seeing Tom sat in the restaurant, I think it was, at Raskas Corner when the flag went down, and these extra half-15s roared off around Monaco for the first time. And you could see him bristling with pride with it, because what had actually happened, we'd gone... We'd gone to Jaguar and they said, we believe you're developing a V12 carbon fiber road car. And Tom opened up and said, yes, that's absolutely correct. Jaguar, as I say, at first were pretty put out by it because it clearly was in some ways the car that 220 owners were expecting. And immediately it created a little bit of you know consternation between various people. And Jaguar quite rightly said, listen, you cannot just go out there and market this as a TWR offering. There has to be a link because we have such close ties. And therefore, the Jaguar Sport Intercontinental Challenge was formed. And as you rightfully say, these cars were bought. They were entered into this championship. And the owners of those cars, there they were, down there in sunny Monaco, able to enjoy a Grand Prix weekend, seeing their own cars raced, with a number of very, very quick drivers in them. But as Andy Wallace has said, both when we were at, at Blenheim and subsequently you know, in a chat with yourself, these were not easy cars to drive because although they were based around the carbon composite tub, they really didn't have the downforce of a Group C car. And you can imagine around Monaco with the old V12 screaming away behind your head, they were quite a handful, but they were an incredible sight streaming around that Monaco weekend. And they further enhanced the Jaguar Sport brand and they further enhanced TWR as, as a really capable and competent design and engineering group. Well, it is the definition of 90s Playboy lifestyle stuff, this race, isn't it? Because they were basically playing for a pair of, I think they were TWR-prepared XJSs, the XJRS road cars, weren't they? That was part of the prize. And then at Spa, wasn't it like a million-dollar prize fund or something? So you basically got your car back for free or something, you know? Absolutely. I can't remember whether it was a million. I think it was a million dollars, actually, US dollars. I don't think it was pounds. And... Clearly, it was all to play for, and, and <laughs> I defy any race driver, be a club driver or a professional driver, when you put up a million-dollar prize, you know, prize fund for, for whoever wins that race, you're clearly going to get fireworks. And fireworks, we got several of the cars in that three-race series did get quite badly, you know, not the chassis damage, but I, from the memory, I don't think it was chassis damage, but there was quite a lot of body splitter damage, rear, you know, rear body work damage. Because everybody really was keen to have a go. And the great thing about it, of course, was you had these identical cars with very large amounts of horsepower, great aerodynamics, not a lot of grip, and it, it led to some real fireworks. And when we got to that final round, I remember Andy King saying to me leading up to it, he said, you know, there's either going to be several million pounds worth of damage at Eau Rouge or we're going to get somebody come out of it who's going to come out a million dollars better off. And that's exactly what happened. But it, it, it got an enormous amount of publicity for Jaguar Sport at the time. And I think it established the XJR15. I'd been to Japan, I think, seven or eight times in the lead up to uh, that series of races selling cars through a Japanese dealer and they were immensely popular and everybody wanted to get their hands on one 
as you say, very dicey racing. And uh, I think carnage was a word used to describe the first round in Monaco in 1991. <laughs> and I guess that comes from not having a works team structure and boss behind you as well, whilst you're racing for a million dollar prize fund. It's bound to be a little bit dicey, isn't it? I was going to avoid the word carnage, but it's exactly what it was. Um, you know, I remember, in fact, somewhere tucked away in the collection, uh, in my bits and pieces, I think there's some bodywork off one of those XJR 15s with a TWR sticker on it. It really, really was, you know. Um, I think what it was, was it was it was put up as a challenge, but in reality, had there been more races, i.e. had there been a six or seven round championship for it, I don't think we'd have seen the outcome that we saw at Monaco and, and you know, at the other two because, quite simply, everybody was just out there and, and, and having immense fun in these cars. But we all have to remember they were incredibly high-value vehicles. But in the end, it provided enormous entertainment. It provided some very, very good close racing, which people enjoyed immensely. And yet again, it was another feather in Tom's cap because from those early discussions we had with Jaguar and some of them were a bit you know frosty because he designed and built this car behind the scenes it actually can I use the phrase it cleaned up the car and it also cleaned up the the intercontinental challenge into something that became a real mark in history a sort of a chalk mark in history a line in the sand that said here we go TWR I've done it again well, there were 16 grid slots available and some of the big names that were driving cars included Derek Warwick, Tiffany Dell, Big John Nielsen was there as well, mm-hmm. uh, uh, one mm-hmm. Manuel Fangio's son, Fangio the second, Bob Wallach mm-hmm. even entered. Yes, David indeed, Jones. I like Bob Wallach. Yeah, uh, David Brabham was there, our friend of the podcast, Win Percy, of course, and the guy who took the win and the end at Spa, Armin Hana. Um Now, mm-hmm. Spa was... A bit controversial, wasn't it? Because by the time they'd got to the third round, there were some accusations flying around about race fixing. And Tom, I know, was very involved with administering the rolling starts at the beginning of each race. So is it true that actually when they had that rolling start at Spa, they actually didn't know how many laps they were going to race for? It's a conversation I've had with Andy King and Andy Morrison. And it's always it's always a conversation that's always ended up with the three of us just smiling at each other and never actually saying, yeah, that was how it ended up. uh, At the start of the race, nobody knew how many laps the race was going to go for. And I think there was a bit of common sense in all of that as well, because I think that a circuit that has Eau Rouge, and, you know, in the past, we've lost greats like Stefan Beloff, you know, who crashed and died at Eau Rouge in, in the Porsche many seasons before that. I think there was a genuine concern within TWR overall that, if we got to a last sort of two lap, one lap down to the finish flag dash, there could be the potential, you know, for a real big shunt because of the lack of downpours on these cars. And in true Tom style, he said, listen, you know, when we're ready to, when we're ready to throw the flag, we'll throw the flag. I don't think it was race fixing. I think that was a bit of sensationalism, but of course, Armin Hanna had a great history with Tom and he raced with Tom in the past. And I think that therefore, you know, when he came across the line and the flag went down, it was inevitable, but you know what? there was a bit of noise about it at the time, but I actually don't think people really cared too much because truthfully, at the end of the day, they still had their cars that now, of course, have proved the prices are going up and up again. The 15 is a very desirable car to own. And I think truthfully now, all of that stuff just sits there in the history books. Will anybody ever sit down and say that was definitely what happened? I don't think so, to be honest. I don't think 30 years later, it really matters either, to be honest. 
Uh, well, it is a race that probably couldn't happen in modern times. It was a sign of those times, wasn't it? It was the post-80s boom generation, really. Um, and of course, it was just the last opportunity to do things like that in motorsport and in the motor industry itself, because of course a big recession came in the mid-90s, and that was to change the way people like Jaguar built cars in the future. It was indeed. Somebody actually I spoke to the other day, I hadn't spoke to for many, many years, who had worked with him motor racing, uh, Ian Cunningham, because he responded, I'd, I'd used his name with you about the David Coulthard Highland Spring piece, and he phoned me and he said, oh, you know, we haven't spoken for years. And uh, he said, I prefer to look back and call it Formula Fun from that era. And I think, you know, Formula One motorsport was immensely enjoyable in that era. And you're right, there were certain things that were done, models that were built, limited production runs like the XTR 15. You just wouldn't be able to do them now because the times aren't right for them. And those of us that were fortunate enough to feel it, touch it. And I think I've said before, I remember going around the Oxfordshire lanes in the passenger seat of Tom Four, the XJR 15 development car. And I'll tell you now, it was a bit scary in the 30s. I certainly wouldn't want to do it in the 60s. <laughs> well, someone who is racing still Jaguars very hard and having a lot of fun doing it is Tom Robinson from Swallows Independent Jaguar. And with his latest race preparation update, Tom's next. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Well, we've now had a week since um, the little bit of a disaster at Snetterton with the racing being cancelled due to the weather. So we've had a little bit of time to have a bit of a debrief and, and kind of rethink what we're going to be doing before the next round, which is at Donington at the end of the month. So we've got uh, sort of about three or four weeks to carry out any modifications or improvements that we'd like to do to the car now. Um, as I said in, in last week's episode, we, we had the car in the qualifying session, which was pretty dry, um, and we, we put the car on pole. So the, the car is absolutely brilliant and it's got the pace, um, and we've managed to, to really dial in on that. We're just, I guess, ironing out a couple of a small little kinks we've got, or, or always trying to work to get a step ahead so that we've got an edge somewhere now um, one of the things that we noticed that I talked about last week is that in the dry um, we had a little bit of traffic around us so it wasn't a true example um, but we noticed the engine temperatures were a little bit hotter than what we expected so we're not entirely sure what's caused this because we've we've not had any issues up to now um, we spent a lot of time on the dyno with no issues and we've got quite a good well what we think is a good and efficient cooling system we've got an aluminium radiator which is like a modern twin pass radiator so the water will pass through a single radiator twice which is more efficient a lot of the more modern Jaguars run this setup and, and I know a lot of some of the BMW and VW run this system as well and we also we don't run a mechanical water pump um, the problem is with mechanical water pumps is when you're running at high rpms you can cause um, cavitation so the water doesn't actually circulate properly around the engine so um, a lot of people reduce the pulley size now we actually use an electronic water pump and we can do this we can power this very di different ways we can either do it um, via throttle position rpm um, we can just control it exactly how we want with the ecu so we don't run a thermostat and we can actually tell the water pump as and when we want it to circulate water and at what speed so it's, it's really effective and we've got multiple coolant sensors so I'm, I'm quite surprised we're getting an issue um, or well at least we're not really sure if it is an issue it's just hotter than we would like to see so we want to make sure that 
this isn't going to be a problem when we're at full race pace for 20 minutes in the dry which we unfortunately haven't really had a chance to prove this year so um, we're going to look over that and and try and book a test session before Donington so we can spend the day um, I guess data logging the car and just seeing exactly what these coolant temperatures are doing if they are still increasing then we can look at maybe adding some ducting to the front to make sure the air is actually going through the radiator rather than around it and we can look at the tables in the ECU just to make sure we can potentially increase the water pump at certain loads just to make sure that we're getting rid of that heat before it does become a problem so that's one of the points that we that's come up since Snetterton and we really just want to get on top of that before there is a problem um, now one of the other things that we've been continually battling with this car really is to is to, to shed as much weight from it as possible now being a saloon we are competing against the XJS's they're kind of our biggest competitor they're a very lightweight car um, and it does show to be honest we find that with the the XJR it does tend to to lose tires quicker than the XJS do and the XJS are naturally a little bit nimble whereas the XJ is a lot more stable at speed so this has benefit at certain circuits with the the longer swooping corners we can seem to carry more speed than the XJS is so it's a continual battle for us we're just trying to shed as much weight as possible now we've obviously taken as much weight as we can out the shell where we can without reducing its actual structural integrity um, but one of the um, points that we've come keep coming back to is the actual weight of the wheels we've got on the car we use the bbs split rim um, mainly because it's the only wheel that gives us the clearance we um, need around the brakes um, as we're running quite a large disc on the front we run a 360 mil disc it's very awkward to get the clearance on the actual caliper on the inside of the wheel there so that's mainly why we use that wheel but it's actually extremely heavy it being a split rim I believe that they're, they're actually about 16 kilograms per wheel which is which is massive and and that is the outside of the damper so it's unsprung weight so that's normally two times that um, unsprung so it's a lot of weight there and it's, it's a point that we keep coming back to so we've actually um, been looking at wheel options and we've managed to to get a wheel that's significantly lighter than the originals we're restricted to 1400 kilograms but that is with me in it and fuel so i think we've got about 50 kilograms over where we need to be so with me in it we are over the 1400 so we're just trying to find that final 50 kilograms because at, at the end of the day it is it is free power as a lot of people say it's a huge help having a lighter car and is what we all normally try to do is to get the car as light as possible then put the weight where we want it so with a large straight six at the front the cars are heavily front weight dominant so we want to move weight further back over the rear axle to try and get us the best 50-50 weight distribution as possible. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of insight as to what we've got lined up for the car for the next round. And uh, we'll talk next week after the test day and let you know how we got on and what we found on the test day with the new parts on the car. And uh, yeah, we'll talk through some of the final race prep um, for Donington uh, the following week. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk. Well, next on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, I'll start by telling you a little story. I was driving on a regularity rally some years ago. I think I was driving a TR2 at the time. And in the dainty little rearview mirror of this Triumph TR2 on this particular regularity stage, 
loomed large, a Jaguar C-Type. And it was a fantastic sight, I have to say, this beautiful white C-Type coming up behind me on this uh, rally. And I kind of had an idea, an inkling of what it must have felt like to have been one of those other Le Mans competitors when the likes of Duncan Hamilton loomed up behind you on the Molesam Strait in the 1950s. I later found out that the driver of that Jaguar C-Type had actually built the car himself. And that driver and that owner joins us now. Hello, Ron Siddle. Good morning, Wayne. Hello to you. Well, tell us all about how you got so passionate about the Jaguar C-Type. What are your earliest memories of that car? Well, the earliest memory from from my point of view was as a, a, a schoolboy, as many schoolboys back in the 60s would be doing a paper round in the morning. And on my paper round, I was aware each morning at a particular time, an unusual sounding car came along this road with little fly screens on it. I couldn't identify the car at the time, but I did know the engine was very different. It didn't sound like an MG midget, and it didn't sound like a Triumph Spitfire or any of the sports cars that were around. But the guy who was driving it, he got a full set beard on the face, larger than life, and it was always on full throttle down this road each morning, I said. And it encouraged me to, um, you know, be on time to do my papers, otherwise I'd miss this car. After a while, the car disappeared, and I went on to other things, left school, went to work, all the usual things, went through college. But I always remembered this uh, dark blue uh, sports car with a different sounding engine and lo and behold I stumbled across the owner of it who in fact was an insurance broker and I recognised him by his beard when I went to insure probably one of my first cars with him and he explained to me that it was an XK120 and he'd removed the windscreen to make it look like the Le Mans cars he'd removed the bumpers and it sounded superb. I can still hear it now. Anyway, that car perhaps was the initial seed in my mind and the passion to own a Jaguar. Although I've not really been a great fan of Jaguars, the C-Type was always something special. I'd seen them racing up uh, Silverstone Classic, Goodwood, Le Mans Classic. I got up close and personal to a number of the original cars. I actually drove Aubrey Thinberg's car, albeit only about 300 metres, at Silverstone a few years ago. I've got to know another owner who owns the oldest of the C-types, original C-types, which is Nigel Webb's car, car number four. And with all this going on, it did become obvious to me I could never own one of these cars. I am a mere mortal, and I don't have a million pounds. So it was just a case of admiring, watching them, reading about them, learning about them. And uh, lo and behold, at Silverstone, one particular year, there was a C-Type replica for sale, which obviously uh, caught my attention. I had a good look round it. I knew it was a replica, but it looked very, very good. It was silver. 
and there was a price on it that I couldn't afford. And after a little bit of homework, I found out that this car was made by a company called Realm Engineering. So after some time, I went to visit them. Uh, I phoned them up, spoke to them, and that was back in 2006. And what they were doing, they were building the chassis and the bodies, supplying them to other individuals in a professional way where those people would build and complete a car for a, a new owner. So Realm Engineering didn't actually build cars. They built the chassis and the bodies and the bits and pieces you might need to complete a car. So when I suggested to them that I wanted to build my own, they came straight back and said, yeah, you can do that, but we don't have a build manual, you know. So I don't worry about that. I'll find my way around it. And um, that was the beginning. In 2007, I placed my order for the chassis and the body panels and set to to build the car. Um, all Jaguar-based, Jaguar engine and running gear, um, Jaguar brakes, modern Jaguar brakes, much better than the original C-Type. Um, I bought a Jaguar XJ6 Series 3, which is the big valve injection engine, probably um, the best and final incarnation of the XK engine at 4.2 litres, and conservatively, I think it was, Jaguar said it was producing 250 brake horsepower. So that was extracted from the XJ6. I stripped that down to the last nut and bolt, and it was in remarkable condition. It had, in actual fact, done 85,000 miles, the engine. But I renewed every part I could, every moving part, and kept those parts that were serviceable, made sure they were okay. I'd never built an XK engine at that point in my life. I have to say, I am an engineer by profession, and I've got a pretty good idea how nuts and bolts go together. So with some care, concentration, I built the engine up with some good help from the likes of our Ken Jenkins, another guy called Ken Verity, who restores Jaguar E-types, because I found that the E-type parts, the XJ parts, the C-type parts for my replica were very much the same. We shared lots of bits and pieces. But as I went along, um, I think it was in November 2008, I may be wrong, I found myself out of work. Uh, the company I was working for moved their operations back to Finland, um, and that change didn't include me. So I was uh, 58 years old, made redundant, cut a big lump out of my pension, but left me with a little bit of a golden handshake, which would, of course, help the Jaguar go together. But with no income, um, my wife had just changed her role at work and, and gone to work part-time, so I very uh, cautiously suggested to her that perhaps she should go back working full-time in due to the fact that I was unemployed. And I was amazed. I said, yeah, okay, it's probably a good idea. So well, it'll only be for a short time, and I'll get another job in a couple of months. 
Now that didn't happen. <laughs> I went in the garage and I came out five months later and the car was completed. <laughs> but my pockets were empty because it had taken all my money. <laughs> and Deb was still working full time. And eventually she sort of turned around and said, well, it's a lovely car, but I think you ought to get a job. <laughs> uh, so on the 14th of June, 2009, which was our youngest uh, daughter's birthday, we drove out in this rather wonderful uh, car, uh, which was a dream three or four years prior. And I'm, I'm just looking at a photograph of it now with my wife sat in it. And uh, even on my own admission, it's a lovely, lovely looking car. The lines of it are so pure. I know it's not a real C-type. It never will be. It's my replica of it. I've built it. And every year since I've built it, I've done a little modification and tried to make it a little bit better, a little bit more user-friendly, perhaps a little bit more reliable. It's... Um, it's done all I've expected of it. My engine, although I've never had it on a dyno, all of the things I've done to it, it's running on triple Weber carburetors. I've put some fast road cams in it. Uh, it has a lovely exhaust manifold on it. And I would estimate it's probably producing an honest 285 or 290 brake horsepower. Mm, very good. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it it goes when you want it to. And you probably have a unique insight into them now, having built one, as you say, albeit a replica, but as close as you could get to the originals. And of course, the original car used the running gear of the XK120, but it had this lightweight tubular frame that held the car together in its structure. This was, of course, the brainchild of William Haynes and then later Malcolm Sayer. But when you see pictures of those C-type frames, they look incredibly intricate and complicated. How did you get on with building the car around that and dealing with the complexity of that structure? Well, indeed, you're right, Wayne. The... Um the design of the C-type chassis, which is a space frame, of course, using round and uh, U-section uh, steel, uh, very cleverly triangulated to give the uh, strength and stiffness to the chassis. Um, and, of course, the realm chassis was, in fact, originated or designed by a chap called Adrian Reynard, who some of our listeners may know. Um, so the chassis is a very similar design with the exception that it doesn't use the live axle of the original 120, nor does it use the torsion bars of the original 120 in the suspension areas. But in general, it's the same principle. Um, and my replica probably gives a more pleasant ride on the roads than the original because it has independent rear suspension. So getting around that, um, with my background, it was fairly straightforward in how things worked using um, the very, very clever design of both Realm Engineering, uh, supported by Adrian Reynard. It's gone together very, very well. I've done 25,000 miles in it, and I will admit it's been generally fault-free. There's been a few little niggles along the way, wear and tear it has been driven quite hard i've been to italy in it um up to the milli i've been to france in it three times to the le mans classic 
and it travels up and down the country on an annual basis. And it's been generally fault-free, and where it has had a little problem, it has been of my making. Um, <laughs> it's been a good car. And it's an incredibly beautiful shape, the C-Type. Of course, the pioneering aerodynamic design of Malcolm Sayer. He took all of that information and experience he had from designing aircraft to uh, design the C-Type ready for racing in uh, Le Mans in 1951. And putting that body together must have been a real challenge, getting the panels to line up and making sure all those curves were just so. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, that was one of the major challenges for me in that, you know, I'm not a body man, but I know what a good body should be like. Uh, and if I say to you, fitting the bodywork, which is the mid and rear section, is almost one piece, a very, very clever um, design in GRP moulding by Realm Engineering, and um, it fitted almost perfectly, but the alignment of the bonnet, if I say to you my fortnightly break from work on the first year of construction on my part, I spent two weeks just fitting the bonnet in there every day for several hours with pieces of string and mirrors and ensuring that it was absolutely where it should be. And it's paid off. It's, um, it is a beautiful body, a very, very pure shape. And you said, you mentioned there that you'd gone down to the Mealy Melia and you'd used it a lot. And there were some modifications that you've made to it and, and, and bespoke bits that you yourself have, have built for the car that just make it a little bit more usable every day, isn't there? Tell us about some of the things you've changed for your own personal use. Oh, yes, of course, there's quite a few modifications. As I've learned to live with the car, and, uh, you know, I want to drive the car, enjoy it, in the company of my wife. Now, as many of our listeners will realise, that girls don't like getting wet, certainly in cars. And the C-Type doesn't have any weather gear, nor does it have any storage space. So I had to make provision and change things to ensure my wife was happy on some of these uh, adventures we went on. The Milli Millia in 2012, we were going to go over there for 22 days. A girl needs lots of clothes in 22 days. And a lot and of a shoes. Sh <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I allowed her three pairs. Right. <laughs> but um, the, the modifications I made to the car were, in fact... At the rear of the car, if, if you get up close and personal with the C-Type, there's a small door on the back of the car, or a boot lid, so to speak, which opens up, and inside there lies the spare wheel. Quite a large thing, 16-inch wire wheel with a full-profile um, Avon tyre on it. And, of course, we don't need spare wheels, do we? So I thought. So I know what I'll do. I'll take the spare wheel out, leave it, and we'll use that space for luggage, soft bags and shoes and whatever Deb needs, uh, hats and umbrellas and everything you need for a 28-day trip to Italy. So I did precisely that. And I, I did keep thinking about not having a spare wheel and being, you know, halfway down Italy and getting a puncture. So what I did, I took the spare wheel for my brother gave him an envelope with a hundred pounds in it sealed up and said to him 
if you get a phone call from me, give this wheel and tyre to a courier, get it sent to where I am, and get yourself ready for the other one coming back, because it'll be, you know, one out and one in. And uh, I think that might work. And very luckily, our journey over to Italy, to the Milli Millia, up and down Italy and all around everywhere, we got all of the way home without a puncture. And getting off the ferry at Hull, after doing, I think it was something like 2,000 miles all in, in in the trip, there was something wrong with the steering as I was driving off the ferry. And I managed to manhandle it off the ferry and got out of the car, looked down, a front offside tyre was flat as a kipper. At which point I'm 60 miles from home. So I thought, oh, this has worked out well. I'll just phone my brother, tell him to go, you know, nip out from work, so to speak, and bring the wheel to me. And I thought, well, wait a minute, I've got one of these um, aerosol cans, you know, quick fix things. Well, let's give it a try. So in the pouring rain, on the uh, customs pan at, uh, at the whole ferry port, I jacked the front of the car up. After reading the instructions, you must take the weight off the wheel. Felt all round for anything stuck in the tread, and I couldn't find anything in it. Screwed this can into the into the valve, pressed the button, and hey, presto, it inflated the tyre, and we're back in business. Unscrewed the can back in the car and drove home so I didn't need the spare wheel a day or so later I took the wheel off took it down to my tyre man stripped it down found a hole in the inner tube fitted a new inner tube put it all back together and it's still going now so I got away quite luckily there absolutely yeah typical just yeah. as you get home off the ferry <laughs> <laughs> well better there than going <laughs> yeah, absolutely uh, the other modifications I've done it you mentioned I've uh, I noticed uh, the car weighs just under a thousand kilograms, and I noticed when caught out in the wet, exiting, exiting a roundabout, 300 brake horsepower going through a five and a half inch wide tyre does not add up to uh, a lot of grip. And quite often, a wheel would spin and um, shoot the car off in a direction I wasn't expecting, and made it a bit of a handful at low speeds on too much throttle in the wet. So I decided that hmm, I need a, a limited slip differential and I know that'll work, that'll, that'll solve the problem. And of course the options were the power lock diff from Jaguar, um, which is really for quite a heavy car. And after I did a little bit of homework and spoke to people, they all agreed with me that it would probably be too aggressive. Uh, because the car's so light at the rear end. Um, after a little bit of shopping around, I found that Quaif do a torque-sensing diff, which is much, much uh, less aggressive. And I actually fitted one to a race car that I had a few years ago. Um, so I installed that, and it's made the car absolutely superb. Until you get on a showground of grass, where you might just give it a little bit of throttle more than you want with a little lock-on, and it does a nice donut, hmm. as you might remember. When I do remember, yes. Carved up my <laughs> arena lovely, that did, Ron, yes. <laughs> but 
so long as you look quite gently, it doesn't usually <laughs> dig the grass up. <laughs> I got into a little bit of trouble over that, but it was worth every minute of it to see a sea type pirouetting <laughs> in my that. arena. <laughs> It was great. Uh, that was, of course, the Bowness Revival up in Scotland, which you were a regular at. And, uh, of course, the venue for that regularity rally that I spoke about when we uh, began this interview. And that's part of the joy for you, Ron, isn't it? It's getting that car out and about and seen and, and using it and enjoying it. Yes, absolutely. And, and that is my intention for the future. You know, I've had 11 years on the road most of which has been enjoyed by my lovely wife, my very tolerant wife. But about three years ago, she said to me, just prior to going to the Silverstone Classic, which we'd gone to every year, and, and, and every year before the C-Type came along, she asked me what I, how I felt about going on my own, rather than her joining me, which I was quite shocked. And I said, why is that? Why don't you want to go? And she just looked at me and she said, well, I'm just fed up of getting wet. <laughs> <laughs> and she honestly, she hasn't been in the car for three years. Hmm. Uh, and I get that. It's not a pleasant place to be when it rains. You do get wet. It's a load of rubbish about going faster and it goes over your head. <laughs> uh, the faster you go, the harder it hits your face and the more it hurts is the truth. <laughs> um, I'll never go out deliberately in the rain, but I often get caught out in it. And the car comes back quite filthy, quite grubby, but that's how it is. That's how it should be. Um, you have to live with that. Well, I understand that your car has amazed so many people now with the bespoke items that you yourself has made for it that you're actually starting to make parts for other people now as well, and, and, and other C-type owners are asking you for you to make things for them. That's absolutely right. I... Um... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm quite flattered by the attention uh, that, it, that, that it creates, people looking at it. And um, one chap in particular down, um, I think he lives in, um, in Gloucester somewhere, he's actually had a car built identical to mine, same colour, and uh, he's asked me to make him some of the bits that are on my car because I, I make a bespoke airbox uh, for the C-Type on Webers, which if you use Webers as per the original cars, then the original cars had a cut in the bonnet to draw air into the Webers, which I feel spoils those beautiful lines, this almost carbuncle on the bonnet of a cut to scoop air in, like, a, like an American dragster. It's bloody awful. However, I've looked into it, looked at the original cars that many didn't have Webers on, they had SU carburetors, and they actually have a very clever ducting system from the grill, drawing cold air along under the bonnet to the carburetor area. And that's what I will be doing to this clone of my car. It's actually a replica of my replica. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so I will be doing all of that uh, panel work un unseen under the bonnet, which will lead it to a, a new airbox, which um, is of my own design and using early 50s technology and aircraft te technology, I actually hand rivet all of this airbox. And if ever you see my car or Giles's car, which will look very similar to mine, take a look under the bonnet. Have a look at the airbox. 
not massively different, but it's those little details that just make it a little bit more interesting. Well, it's an amazing achievement to have built seat up in the first place, Ron, and then even better that you get to drive it and enjoy it in the way that you do. And we get to enjoy it because you bring it to so many shows. And of course, next year, 2021, is of course the anniversary of the very first win of a C-Type at Le Mans. Of course, Peter Walker and Peter Whitehead driving that car to victory in the 24 hours of Le Mans in 1951, starting, of course, the great long story that eventually led to the other anniversary we'll be celebrating next year. Of course, the E-Type uh, celebrates 60 years. So we'll be gathering all of the Jaguars at Blenheim Palace for the Summer Jaguar Festival, and hopefully we'll see you there as well. But I understand you've become a bit of a scholar of C-Type history since you've built yours as well, and, and you've you've really got into the stories behind it, haven't you? Oh, I have indeed. I, um, I won't say I eat, sleep and breathe C-Types, but because it's such a passionate car, I have read all I possibly can about them, and I've spoken to the owners, and they 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 really are of a similar mind to me in that they know they have a very very special car, uh, and that you know the, the three cars that I've been fortunate to get up close and personal with: Nigel Webb's car, as I've said, David Wenman's car. Um, and Aubrey Finberg's car. Um, and hopefully next year, the anniversary year of that uh, that great win in, in 1951, uh, I will be out and about at every event I possibly can, making up for lost time this year, of course. And I certainly will be at Blenheim Palace. I hope there's some other C-types there, whether they are replicas or original, doesn't really matter to me. It's just, you know, that image what it's all about getting them use them drive them enjoy them is my philosophy well of course you can find out more about the summer jaguar festival where we'll be celebrating the anniversary of the first c-type win at jc.org.uk forward slash festival and ron thank you so much for coming on and sharing the build story and your personal story of c-types with us here on the jaguar enthusiast club podcast ron siddle thanks very much you're most welcome, Wayne. All the best to you. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JC Podcast via www.jcpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.